What we got here is a failure to communicate. TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. Happy Hanukkah, whether you are of the Jewish persuasion. And it is possible to be persuaded to turn Jewish, as a matter of fact. <laughs> a great, rich, ancient tradition is celebrated once again. Happy Hanukkah, indeed. I'm Gary Mann. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. I was raised Catholic. Suzanne was raised in Chicago. <laughs> And it, with all manner, I was a, a real quilting bee of her spiritual influences, and that creates the rich tapestry of who she is today. Well, enough of that. Let's say hello to bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. Benny, how are you today, sir? Doing very well, manning my post, and it's good to see you, kind of, for today's show. You can hear us. I can hear you just fine. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, this is a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And if we have any glitches, and I doubt that there will be any, but should that happen, you can put no. the blame on us because we have dragged our feet long enough Suzanne we're yes. finally getting into zoom culture it's only taken over the world of communications especially interpersonal or well done. communication well done what a and step the up station, to the they've been 20th century for quite a while to, to uh, <laughs> let go of, of Skype and this phone business and start using zoom so far so good so far so good we'll see we'll see I, I have I have faith that it's all going to work out but you know when you're first timer we're zoom virgins here today setting up so we'll see i'm so proud Beautiful. of you i'm so proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we so are lighting scary. up zoom hoping it lasts for eight days if our luck holds up and what better for a good luck charm you can't do better than our good friend Turi Ryder. what an extraordinary lady with a great biography a wonderful background in radio she's a star of talk radio we met her at a radio convention and so with so many of our people, we never see them in person. We only know them through radio, but this is a lady we have actually met in person, shook hands, gave her a big hug. We're both from Chicago, so there was two hugs. I, prior to that, I was fortunate enough to work with Tori yes. in Seattle. Right. And she came in to right. do some shows there. And I recall being her board operator and producer of the evening. And we had a really good time together. And I thought it's really great when you get to see and just hobnob with the people that you put on air. She is a fun lady. Tori Ryder is a music and talk radio host whose voice is known to listeners in Chicago, San Francisco, Seattle, Los Angeles, Minneapolis, and Portland. Her not quite empty nest features a broadcasting studio and variously one spouse, two children, a rescued German shepherd, and numerous marauding chickens, which we've never asked her about. Welcome once again to Manson Mitchell, Tory Ryder. So happy to have you on with us today. I am so honored to be here. And I, I just have to add to uh, Gary's description of you as being described as raised in Chicago. People ask what my husband was raised. And we always just say Democrat. <laughs> yes, that's right. In Cook County, absolutely, where they vote if they vote early, early and, often, and often, and it's, it's not a, it's not a prohibition to be dead. Apparently, if you no. go, if we've you listen, done, we've cleaned a lot of that up, and so uh, far, we have not been accused. I would like. I think we may be the only state this past election that has not been accused of having dead people voting, which is really 
quite a turnaround from our history. Well, the thing is, Tori, you have to allow for the fact that even the dead can migrate. Oh, yeah, you know, I, I <laughs> forgot if I were, you know, and you have had guests who discuss this very thing. <laughs> That's yeah. true. And they, we count them among our friends as well. It's fascinating, Tori, to think in Chicago terms. My, I've been more or less adopted by the Mitchell clan. I frequent their homes at, north of Chicago in Glenview, lovely bedroom community in and around Chicago, Chicago land generally. And I find Tori, that it, it's a great compliment to the people who were born and raised in Chicago or who have otherwise adopted Chicago land as their home space, because there is there is a practical intelligence, there is an appreciation for the arts, certainly of religion, a, a certain fealty to one's relatives. I, I think, uh, I forget, but a filial piety. I think the anthropologists would call that filial piety. Oh, and I'll tell you, Tori, I saw that much in evidence back in 2016 when Suzanne and I went up there for Thanksgiving. It was in the immediate aftermath of the Cubs' final breaking of the 108-year jinx by winning the World Series. And I remarked to uh, Suzanne and her relatives how impressed I was that people had adorned the headstones of long dead relatives with Chicago Cubs swag. They had the W flags there. They had Cubs caps there. One, one man drove 500 miles for game seven and listened to it on a radio at his father's grave. I remember these stories. That was, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we live about a mile north of Wrigley Field, so uh, we we see the the pilgrimages when it is non-pandemic time, um, and the partying sometimes spreads. It's kind of interesting. We have a little buffer between our neighborhood and Wrigleyville. It's a cemetery, but you know there are intrepid fans who will start to wander north, and we see them with their full regalia. They make their way and attempt to sober up at our neighborhood coffee shops because we have fewer bars and more coffee shops. It's an interesting phenomenon in, in the baseball season in the non-pandemic years. It's true. If, if you haven't done it yourselves, you can base next time you guys are in Chicago, you can just make us your base of operations and, and wander down and observe the festivities. The whole of Wrigleyville has turned into and when I when I was first in radio here in Chicago, it was kind of this scuzzy little area with some really cool like ska bars and reggae bars. And now it's a whole any city, big tourist city has some version of this, the big sports bar district. That's that's how it is now. Before we leave the Chicago area and get back to Seattle, I did want to ask you if the ghost of Mrs. O'Leary's cow got loose the other day because I saw on the news where there was a, another Chicago fire with 250 firemen. Did you? You know, we periodically, and I, I have to do a little more digging into this huge fire, and I don't believe anyone was injured. I should double check on that. No, they said no one was injured. One thing that happens fairly regularly in Chicago is there are kind of, and I'm not saying this was that kind of business by any means, but periodically there are these tire businesses and auto parts businesses. I don't know if you guys have this in, in the Seattle area and Washington, 
But those tires will just basically burn forever if anything ever goes amiss. And dead people don't vote in Chicago anymore, but live people certainly manage to get inspectors to look the other way if you need them to. Um, And so periodically we get one of those fires. And when I heard the news that you're talking about, I thought, oh, please let it not be anything with tires in it or it'll be burning for months. Yeah. Back in 1985, Turi, as I recall, I think I have the year right. People who've been around that long will tell you that they will never forget the famous, the notorious Everett Tire Fire. North of Seattle, about 30 miles in Everett, there was a tire fire that burned for days and the acrid smoke changed the local climate in a very pronounced way. And I recall watching it unfold on the evening news, of course. And I thought, I don't think I have any uh, I have any experience to compare with that. And the smell is absolutely overpowering. It's bad. And it's really and it, funny, you know, it all ties back to politics now, which is that one of the things that may be happening in the new administration incoming is uh, more attention to the fact that a lot of these dangerous businesses, I mean, I shouldn't describe them as just dangerous, but potentially dangerous or businesses that, that risk doing bad things to their communities. If there's a fire or if something falls or explodes or whatever are often in neighborhoods that are, you know, already facing the most obstacles to health and safety and well-being. And it'll be interesting to see what kind of environmental regulation we get in this new administration. Um, I know that locally, there's a huge movement now that basically says, if you wouldn't want this in your fancy neighborhood, why are you sending it to our neighborhood? Um, And it's true. Like, why would a tire pile be anywhere near where people could be breathing it if it caught fire? Good point. Well, is this here? This is the practical intelligence of a Chicago. And see, you look at it now. How can we turn this into not a problem? <laughs> That's one of the great the pragmatism. And there was a philosophical school at the University of Chicago in the early decades of the 20th century. They were known as the Chicago pragmatists. Pragmatism found a philosophical home in Chicago, right there in the heart of the Midwest. And man, I'll tell you, Tori, I get it. I love to be with people who work hard, who create something of value, who prosper thereby, and then they invite their friends to come over. It might be a barbecue, it might be pizza night. Uh, Suzanne's brother's big on that. And share, not the spoils, but share in the joy of prosperity. That seems to me to be quintessentially Midwestern. Really? I, you know, I, as a child of the Midwest, I'd love to claim it, but I, I I believe that Americans all over the country are generous hearted. Um, although I, I will say that I had a harder time experiencing that in the Bay Area where people like when they did well, they're like, I've done really well and now I'm going to go hiking and y'all can figure out what you're going to do. <laughs> it was the only place I ever lived where I didn't feel that spirit of warmth and hospitality. I felt it in Seattle. I felt it you know, wherever I've gone and, you know, traveled in Texas or any place, any place, LA, people invite you, I think. It's a natural American, I think it's an American quality to be neighborly. Um, Don't you, you don't think so? Yeah, no, I think so. Although I do think there are more places that are slightly more standoffish, um, maybe not. Minnesota. 
Minnesota. <laughs> and and, I've heard, and I've heard that about oh, Seattle too, that, you know, sometimes it, it takes a while for people to warm up and then, then you have a friend for life. But, um, you know, there are places, I think there are pockets where people uh, are a little bit more uh, independent and less willing to congregate. Talking about this pragmatism of the Midwest reminds me of a boss that I had who was asking me to do something and it was an unusual business request. So I started to explain to him why it couldn't be done. And I said, well, we can't do that because, and I'm listing my reasons. And when I got done, he looked at me and he said, I didn't ask you how it couldn't be done. I asked you to figure out how it could be done. Mm. And, and so, you know, that was a good lesson for me to not just dismiss something out of hand when, you know, there is always a way to figure things out. Have you been listening to my marriage? <laughs> it <laughs> works, know, doesn't it? You know, it's interesting. I think in people's personal relationships and friends, I mean, you, you probably have experienced this in people, you know, when you, one of you in, in many relationships, one of you will be a, well, there must be a way to do it. And the other may be a little more, well, you know, I don't, I don't see any way. And it's, have you found this to be true in your uh, friendships sometimes where one of you has learned that lesson that Suzanne just described of finding a way that it could be done. And the other one's like, no, no one can climb this hill. No, can't be done. If you're asking me, I would say that that is characteristic. But what's interesting is that Suzanne and I will exchange places in that regard. I think so too. Yeah, I think so too. One of us will be the naysayer and the other will be the, I can figure this out person. So we, interesting. The yeah. The result is that we argue our way to bliss. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, that's a happy relationship. <laughs> I can't even tell you like how many times I have used the, and I love my husband. We've been married a quarter of a century now, but I can tell you how many times I have used the phrase, you're just a fountain of negativity. <laughs> just a fountain of negativity and it's almost like I, I complained about this to someone once and the person said well I, that must be why he married you because you ignore all that and take it as a challenge um because my I mean his his thing is you know I don't see any way we could do that can't be done and my response is always well we'll see about that um which I suppose is what it takes to go into radio in the first place right guys well, it definitely takes that for you because we read your book. She said, what? By Tori Ryder. And you have so many adventures on your road to getting into radio. And when you were beginning, it was definitely a, uh, a, a man's job. And so you had to break a lot of ceilings to get where you got in radio. And it's a, it's a lot of fun. I, I want to recommend it as a oh, great read, you. especially at Hanukkah and Christmas time. Yeah, good, good gift. It makes a good gift. It does. And it's fun. It's just a fun read. It better make somebody in your household laugh is what I have to say. Well, oh, now Gary, <laughs> Gary and I laugh out loud while oh, we're yeah. reading that's it. That's good. And so yeah. the, the challenge right now has been the podcast because that's another one where, you know, if you're not, if you don't have a big TV show or a big sports franchise or, you know, something like that, it's, it's, it's a boulder to push up the hill, but actually I've been enjoying shoving the boulder up the hill slowly, never the fast way, never the easy way. 
Um, but at the season when so many people in the middle of a pandemic are having to slow down and find other ways to do stuff, I, I feel like it's prepared me in some ways. Um, and I think most people have a have something about their lives that they can draw on for this pandemic to say, okay, well, this skill that I had to use in this difficult circumstance, this is really going to come in handy now. Would, would you not imagine? I mean, I'm sure. What, what's it been for you, assuming you, there is one? You know, you kind of anticipated one of the places that we wanted to go with you today. And I'm, I'm going to kind of turn it back on around you. I, we start out by saying happy Hanukkah. And I wanted to ask you if you felt like in this year of coping with COVID, if you're able to celebrate Hanukkah the way you would normally like to do that, or if you feel like the, the spirit has been a little bit sapped out of the holiday this year. Wow. Um, well, for starters, I just, I need to flag just in the interest of, of candor. It's not really a major religious holiday, Hanukkah. Um, it's kind of grown because of its proximity to Christmas and a lot of kids coming home going, why don't we get so, so it got bigger. I mean, it really did. Um, and, um, and just to, we're not a, we, 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 and, and also what's true is because it's a fairly minor holiday, um, without a lot of the restrictions of the more of the older holidays, it can be more easily shared. If you're an observant person on, on Hanukkah, you wouldn't be taking pictures of your holiday table and you wouldn't be Zooming. So the bigger challenge were the um, the New Year, the Day of Atonement, Passover. I can't believe how much of the calendar we've, we've been in this yes. situation. Yeah. Um, for me personally, the hard part has been that we have... Uh, well, two parts. We have one university student who's at home and has spent a lot of time uh, on the couch. <laughs> and we we had to kind of, he's working hard from the couch. Uh, but but there was some readjustment where, where he seemed to feel that there might be a staff to cater to him. And we pointed out that he had some obligations and couldn't just lie on the couch and do his work. Um, and so there was that. Um, you know, little, little scenarios like coming down and saying, when's dinner? And, and the response of, when are you cooking? So we did some of that. When you get off the, the couch? Yeah, when right. you get off the couch, mm -hmm. right. When you get yeah. off the couch and cook something, <laughs> there'll be dinner. Yeah, there was a lot of that. We had a fun exchange where he was he was cooking and he said, well, what, what what's in this can? And I said, you mean the can that's labeled canned tomatoes? <laughs> that can with the picture and the words that say canned tomatoes? Well, is it tomato paste? No, that's the can that says tomato paste. And you kind of wonder what they're learning in university. Um, but the but the older, the, that's the older one. He's almost done. The younger one, to answer your question, has, has made it harder this holiday season for us to be joyful because we're very, very fortunate that he is in school in Canada where they take the pandemic very seriously. Um, and he is much safer in some ways up there than than down here yes but he can't go back and forth so he will be one of like five kids still in his dorm over the holiday and he will be um you know it's yeah. it, everyone's in a single room so you don't have a roommate yeah. uh, a lot of the classes are online so he's in a new country he is going to be really you know at on his own right after finals and if anything goes wrong, uh, we can't help him from here. 
So it's been, I mean, to be perfectly honest and deeply, deeply reveal something, you know, that happens to, I think a lot of parents when their kids go away, some other kids at his university uh, took their lives. And two, two kids within a month. And we, we wanted to hug him. (laughs) We wanted to bring him home at Thanksgiving. We would have brought him home at the winter break, but he, if he, it's like, it's like he's left Kansas and he's in Oz and we can't get him back here um, until something changes or it's spring um, because getting him across the border was, was almost impossible. We had to, we had to basically throw him over the border from Detroit. Um, so, so it's been, you know, the hard part, I think for so many people, I mean, we're very fortunate, but th- you know, I think of all the people who have loved ones who are ill and can't get to them. There's this feeling, I think at the holidays and you saw it with people just, breaking every reasonable sane rule about health and safety there's this feeling that i need to get to you and i understand it we've fought it off every time i haven't seen my mother in months um but you know there's zoom and there's you know we send over food and that's a really long answer to your question but you just you find a workaround you just have to for everyone's safety and people are having to be that resourceful in order to survive and, and not simply survive, but to live a life that feels like it's worth living, that gives you some sense that you are able to comfort yourself and others, that you're able to enjoy life to some degree. Forces, political forces primarily, and to some degree, of course, economic forces, pose a real challenge to all of that. And I'm sure we'll get in. We have a few minutes for our break and then we'll pick it up on the other side. But Tori, I've been very curious and waiting to question you about how you perceive a political dynamic in the United States of America as we close out 2020, this extremely challenging year. How do you see a situation in which 81 million people look at it one way but slightly in excess of 74 million people see it in a diametrically opposed way. And yet we are living in the United States of America. In all my years, I have never seen a challenge like this. And I live through Watergate, but nothing like this. You know, I think some of what we're seeing is the fault of our industry media i mean it's very boring to go take a picture of somebody who said yeah you know i i voted for biden but a lot of my friends are old line republicans and you know they understand the electoral process and that they you know they lost and they're not happy but they'll live with it the same as there were a lot of democrats in 2016 who said well we're not happy about this we won the popular vote but the electoral college works this way and we lost and we'll deal with it i think what they go take pictures of on both sides are the people who are are screaming and manic and you know completely out of control and scaring people putting up christmas decorations by complaining that they're going to you know yelling that they're going to burn their houses down and it's that makes nice photographs for the evening news and horrifies everyone but i i i persist in believing that most people are somewhere in the middle um 
and the our our desire for progress and fairness and justice will will out and people may have different visions of the path that gets us there but i i hope and i may be completely delusional here i hope that when we get a new administration that has demonstrated in tone so far that it wishes to include moderate voices that it's not doing anything extremely radical no one's defunding the police no one's you know wholesale giving everybody you know a million dollars and telling them they don't have to work for the rest of their lives that's not happening and when people see um and and i think that if you can actually help people in their lives if you can make sure they have health care if you can make sure that they have access to a free vaccine for the pandemic so that they can be safe and reopen their businesses. I, I think that actually behavior, it's, it's gotta not be about words now, it's gotta be about actions. Yes, that which can be demonstrated. I can tell you, Tori, that when it was summertime in the aftermath of the George Floyd killing, there when I began to hear chants and to see it on placards, defund the police, one night we were watching the news and I turned to Suzanne and I said, portentously, defund the police. Look at that right there. See, it? See that placard? What is happening with the people who are enraged by what has just happened? When they use language in a blunt way, not nuanced at all, right. defund the police, they have just given the Republican Party a supremely valuable weapon in this presidential campaign year. Bingo. And I, I went to three different marches. They were interfaith marches, Christians, Jews, Muslims, everybody else. Nobody had that sign. Not one person. And I can tell you that here in Chicago, with the reputation of the police that you've heard of, the police behaved very, very well. Um, they made sure everyone was safe. They made sure that the street was clear. We were marching in the historic black neighborhood of Bronzeville um, and we it was it was a good scene all around and everyone wanted justice and there were definitely uh, George Floyd signs everywhere and there were people absolutely you know chanting I can't breathe and uh, hands up don't shoot but nobody you know people understood the the importance of having access to police and I think that people also understand that just as former President Obama has been saying, you know, reasonable, reasonable introspection is required. Pol policing of the police is required. As our mayor said, you know, bad cops hurt all cops. Um, but I, I think that, again, most people, you're absolutely right. You see a sign like that, it just becomes a cudgel and you'll hear it all over where our industry You'll hear it all over right-wing talk radio, people saying, you know, this is what they want. Well, I'm they, and that's not what I want. And and I, if you will pardon me saying so, I think you're they, and that's not what you want either. That's not what most people want. Correct. Yeah. Let's go ahead and take a break. We're at the bottom of the hour. So much to talk about. As I said to Suzanne over our breakfast coffee, don't worry about interviewing Tori Ryder. It's going to get free form very quickly, and that's just how we like it. <laughs> we are talking to the author of she said what 
Turi Ryder is our guest, talk show veteran and a very keen observer of everything from pop culture to politics. That makes her perfect for Manson Mitchell. We will return in a couple of minutes. You're tuned in to Seattle's home of Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to mansonmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world-famed, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. Hi, I'm Arielle Winter. If you're anything like me, your pets are not only your best friends, they're part of your family. American Humane, which has been rescuing animals like Cleo here for more than 100 years, has life-saving tips that can make a big difference before, during, and after disasters such as hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, or wildfires. So when disaster strikes, you want to be prepared to protect them. Be sure to microchip or tag your pets. Never leave them behind in a major crisis and be sure to have an emergency kit ready in your home at all times with a pet crate or carrier, leash, blanket, ID, and medications, their water bowl, and seven to 10 days worth of food. To find out how to protect your entire family during a disaster and help our best friends in their worst times, please visit AmericanHumane.org. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Turi Ryder, author of She Said What?, who shares her insights into our current status and our nation's direction in 2021. On Saturday, Tanya and Joey Medea return with frightening and enlightening stories from their latest book, Roommates from Beyond, How to Live in a Haunted Home. They speak from experience. Bringing you fascinating talk one hour at a time since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150. You found us. Maybe you've been guided to listen. Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell. Uh, that's fun. My Adam favorite. Sandler. Yeah. And, and of course, uh, in the history of music, the big debate is without Adam Sandler, could there have been a modest Yahoo? I'm not sure. The jury's out on that one. You know your stuff there. <clears throat> we are talking to Tori Ryder. Her name is spelled T-U-R-I-R-Y-D-E-R. Tori, if people would like to get, she said what? Or somehow connect with you, let our listeners know how they can do that. So many ways. Um, you could just Google my name and it'll all be there. T-U-R-I, writer like those rental trucks. The book and the podcast have a website. 
um, she said what.net. Um, if you Google my name and then put podcast, that's my fun thing that I'm doing with my sister. Now the book, she said, what is available wherever we love to, we love to give indie booksellers, uh, the biz, but a lot of them are closed right now. So the behemoth will sell you a copy of my book. Mm -hmm. Um, you know who they are? Yes, we do. Yes. They're based right, right in your home area there. Um, and we, we don't, we, I have to say a lot of people diss the behemoth, but I am very grateful to the behemoth sometimes. Um, it's, it's a mixed blessing, the dot-com behemoth. Um, mm -hmm. You don't know what you can get delivered. An entire Hanukkah's worth of gifts you can get delivered. Uh, absolutely. We see the trucks around here all the time. And it's the only means by which I can access four-ply toilet paper. <laughs> something, something the width of a drape. I That's didn't pretty know good. there was such a thing. I didn't know that either. <laughs> Four-ply? making it up. He's making it oh. up. <laughs> oh. I will have you know that the college student, you remember when everybody was hoarding toilet paper? Oh, yes. yes. Yeah, well, the first way that the college student who was sent home because of COVID endeared himself to me was to complain about the stash of toilet paper that I had managed at great personal effort to acquire that it wasn't soft enough for him. I said, you go fight that little Polish lady at Walgreens for toilet paper. She actually, she came up to me. She said, you have too much toilet paper. You give me some. Like, the heck? I says, yeah. my toilet paper. You go fight at some other Walgreens for your toilet paper. You save those fights for Bloomingdale's the day after Christmas. <laughs> you know, somehow we, I don't think this woman had ever been in a Bloomingdale's in her life. She she didn't have that look about her. We started hoarding toilet paper over the summertime when we're saying they're talking about this big third wave is coming in the fall. I said, let's not get caught on a wares here again. So we got several large, you know, twelve pack rolls and shoved them into a closet. And then, but if you can believe this, the last three times I've been at the grocery store, the shelves have been empty. So really? I've just been, again? Uh, the shelves are empty again of toilet paper. And so I'm glad that I did that little bit of hoarding over the summertime because I, you know, it's going to have to last now if, if I don't see those stock, those shelves restocked anytime soon. Huh. Well, I, I will say that my brother-in-law was very proud of his bidet. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. He was uh, very, well he imagined. lorded that bidet over everyone in the family. How he was continental. So proud of himself. <laughs> I didn't even want to know this about you. I just, you know, we're, and it's interesting to see the stuff that people were hoarding, like just because everyone else was hoarding it. Like, well, that's wipes? right. Yes. You well, don't this really is... need wipes, particularly. I mean, no. you can get a rag and soap and wipe. But people were like, I have to. And, and God bless them. Costco would have big signs out front of what they were out of. Oh, oh, well, that's I, actually I handy that. to know yeah. that. And that's scarcity consciousness. This is when people are operating out of fear. It's only human. I get it. But it also creates that climate where negativity rules the day. And it's happening at a time when people, for one thing, and there's a larger point to be made here, but I am curious enough to ask you, Tori, with all that we see going on, and we are hopeful of one or more vaccines becoming available, it looks like we may have two, three, even more between now and next summer. Are you inclined to 
get to the Pfizer vaccine, that's a two dose process. Or are you like those, me included, who are willing to wear the mask, socially distance and wait for the one dose Moderna method, no matter when it's available? Do you have a strategy about that? Oh, it, I am perfectly happy to take my turn and it wouldn't bother me at all to do a two stage. I thought you were gonna ask me, you know, do I need to be at the front of the line? Um, I, I'm willing to get whatever is safe, effective and available when it's my turn. That's my philosophy about it. I would like to see the healthcare workers and the people who work in nursing homes and people with disabilities that make them vulnerable and aged people and people with, I believe everybody now knows the term comorbidities, let them all get vaccinated and teachers for Pete's sakes, let's get the teachers vaccinated. And the first responders. Yeah, I've got a, the kid on the couch is actually also a first responder. So I should, I should say that you know, I'm, I'm actually kind of glad that he, he works on an ambulance while he's in college and I oh volu volunteer ambulance that his school runs in New York. And we were, he got out of there just as the height of the first wave was hitting. Um, but when he goes back, which he looks like he will be doing, they're going to vaccinate him. So I'm grateful, yeah. um, but I'm, I'm willing to take my turn and, and any of them will be fine with me as long as they're safe and effective. Okay. And, and, you know, when the, when I first heard that they were going to prioritize people, I said to Gary, number one, all healthcare workers and first responders, number two, nursing home people. Yeah. And CDC was thinking the way I was thinking, because that's the first two groups they came up with. It's pretty logical, really. I mean, that's the rest of thought. us can just wear our darn masks and stay yeah. home. Yeah. I would like to get see some of the people who are who are considered essential workers, you know, and have to be dealing with people. You see a lot of people delivering stuff to people's houses and they're wearing masks, but the people who open the door aren't wearing masks and breathe right in their faces. And, you know, it's risky and they have to have these jobs. So I would like to see all the delivery people, the restaurant workers, the grocery workers, let's get them all looked after. Yeah, grocery store workers, because everybody is going to the grocery store. And my sister got COVID-19, who is in the grocery store business in uh -oh. Seattle. Oh, bless and her. She got it last February. How so. is she, dare I ask? Uh, she, she was not hospitalized. She has had some recurring symptoms yeah. all these months later. Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, you don't know what the long-term effects are going to be, but it did not get so serious that she needed to be hospitalized. Well, I'm grateful for that. And I hope yeah. that, you know, we find not only a vaccine, but something to deal with the long-term effects people. I mean, it's just, I, I really don't understand how it can possibly be that people think that it's all their own responsibility and so they're not going to wear a mask when it's absolutely clear that if they get sick, it will be our responsibility as a society to take care of them. It's not really your responsibility unless you're willing to get sick and die at home and never go near anybody else until you're done. I mean, then you can say it's your responsibility. But if you have any plan whatsoever of approaching the medical profession for help if you get sick, then it's really not your responsibility. So put a darn mask on your face. It's not so hard. No, it's not so hard. And it's not even unfashionable. There was a time 
when we used to, I won't say giggle or laugh, I don't mean that, but it seemed odd to look at street scenes in Tokyo, for example. Yes. And if it was flu season or if there were, were colds breaking out, you would see people wearing masks out of a sense of social responsibility in Japan. And I would look at that and I actually have said before, I just don't see that catching on here. Not when it comes to cold and flu, but when it's a deadly pandemic, then yes, there's nothing unfashionable or inappropriate about protecting yourself by wearing a mask and insisting, if you must, that other people do likewise, because when those droplets start flying at the Trump rally, ask Herman Cain how that worked out. You can't ask Herman Cain how that worked out anymore. That's right. And and other people, even people setting up that toll. I take that back. It was so mean of me. I'm sorry. There were people, advanced people sent to set up that Tulsa rally for Donald Trump. They were felled by, none died, thank goodness, but they were taken down by this virus. And yet we will have most recently, and it goes on across the country, I, I realize, but I saw scenes from Boise, Idaho a couple of days ago, and people were saying, why should I be worried? Why should I wear a mask when... COVID is 99% survivable. I question the 99% figure, but beyond that, there's more to, here again, lack of nuance, Turi. Let's say that it is, I'm just going to grant for the sake of argument that it's actually 99% survivable. If that is the case- 7% by the later data, so there you we go, have, We had over 3,000, more people than died on 9-11 a couple of days ago, died of this virus in the United States of America, nationwide, over 3,000 people. That's a fact. In one day. In one day, and it keeps on going and it keeps on growing. It's like a 9-11 every day. And, let's say that you do survive. I certainly hope anyone would go to any hospital, any hospital, anywhere in the country of your choice. And if you had the ability to extract from them the statistics regarding the use of ICU beds, look at the percentage of beds nationwide in ICU units that are occupied by patients suffering the effects of COVID as opposed to cancer, heart attack, stroke, or anything else you can name. Now tell me why you shouldn't wear a mask. You see, you can't fit all that on a placard, Tori. That's right. And I mean, that's the other thing. Let's say you don't catch COVID, but you have a heart attack and they take you to the hospital and there's no place for them to take care of you. You can just die right there in the ambulance waiting to get into the emergency room because of all your buddies who didn't wear masks and take care and stay home. It's, it's, it's again, you know, I try not to take the extreme rule, route. It's really, really hard not to, not to say, well, you, you know, it served you right. You, you don't want to say that. And, and I, you know, but I fight myself every day, I, every day. And some of these folks, it's not their fault. The, the quote news, close quote that they're seeing is horsewash, but they don't know that it's horsewash. They've been told that it's, you know, that who was it? There was some nurse who was speaking recently and she said that she's intubating patients who are insisting that it's a hoax, like as she's yes. intubating them. In yes. South Dakota. Yeah. Where we they haven't that. exactly been mask friendly. No. Well, you know, one of the things that I look at, because people are arguing this on both sides, but when I take the most logical approach I can possibly weave through this, 
I look at the population of the United States as a percent of the population in the world. And our population is somewhere between four and 5% of the world's population. So why do we have 20% or more of the world's deaths? If we had four to 5%, that would be in line with our population. But we are way, way, way out of line with our percent of population compared to the percent of cases and percent of deaths in the world. So when you look at it that way, if you look at it just strictly by the numbers, then we're doing something wrong. Yeah. And I, this is going to sound like, I'm going to sound like one of these crazy ladies for a second, but I, I think maybe I am one of these crazy ladies. I think that, that a lot of this you can trace back to a fundamental skepticism of science and behind that an unwillingness to really uh, keep up our formerly top-notch educational system. I think we've we've gutted our schools and so they're not actually teaching people scientific method. Uh, They're not teaching people how to dissect a news story or a news source. We're not teaching people, you know, the basics of virology, microbiology, contagion, epidemic. This is the kind of stuff that actually I learned in seventh grade, but that's, you know, the basic, basic stuff. None of that is being taught. And part of it is um, that nobody wants to pay for schools. I don't have any kids in school. Why should I pay for it? Uh, and the other thing is, I hate to say this, but as a as a practicing religious person, I still think that that I to mix that with your public education system is a mistake. To say that I'm only going to teach what my religion says, and the heck with science, and the heck with all this other stuff that you could learn in school because my religious faith trumps all, I think is a huge mistake. I think people are capable of understanding two things at the same time. Um, And we need for our own good. Well, I'll tell you my favorite story. I went to see one of my favorite stories. Do you remember the cover of the Talking Heads Little Creatures album? Do you remember that art? Uh, Okay, so there's this great artist. He died a few years ago named Howard Finster. He was a very, very religious uh, fundamentalist minister and artist. And he was the kind of artist that Prozac will ruin forever. He had a place in Georgia called the Paradise Garden and all his art. And you can see his stuff in the Smithsonian. He was awesome. And back before he was really famous, I'd bought a piece. So I brought it with me and went to visit him. And he gave this little talk about how he'd had a cold so I'll make sense in a minute. And he was asking for healing and asking, I will quote him exactly. I was asking the Lord to heal me and asking the Lord to heal me. And then I remembered that in my medicine cabinet, I had an entire cabinet full of things I could take for my cold. And I thought about that. We ought not be asking the Lord to do for us what we can do for ourselves. And I think that there's a fundamental unwillingness amongst some people to do what we can for ourselves. And it's just really weird. I went to the doctor the other day. I asked the medical technician how she was doing. And she basically said, you know, it was all up to faith. And I said, well, I'm glad you're also wearing a mask. (laughs) Faith is great, but you also have to wear your mask. So that was my crazy lady speech. 
And well said, absolutely true. That has to be diffused through society in terms of public policy for the sake of public health. That, Turi, leads me to ask you, put on your prognostication hat, if you will. How do you think in the, in the coming months, January 20th, there will be a President Biden, I have no doubt. In the meantime, rather than helping to effect a smooth transition for the sake of all Americans, we have a president who is fully participatory in an 18-state challenge to the election itself, seeking to have it heard by the Supreme Court. These folks want the Supreme Court to overturn a free and fair and very well-conducted secure election so that their guy gets to stay in office. It could be, and this is when I enter a dark space that I need to extract myself from quickly. I listened to a guy like Rush Limbaugh saying, it is no longer possible for liberals and conservatives to coexist. And I start to say the words, I think the guy has a point. And then I pull back and say, that is too nihilistic. I can't go there. Yeah, I'm with you completely. Um, it's an international embarrassment. It's just plain wrong what you're, you're, you know, what that guy says. Because in point of fact, there are people in his world who are not of the same belief that he is, and he exists with them perfectly fine. I would warrant you that half the people treating Rush Limbaugh for his cancer don't listen to his show or subscribe to his beliefs. We have a civil society. And what that means, I will quote, I believe it was Miss Manners years ago. She said, manners are what we have to rely on when we cannot be sincere. And, you know, manners will work. They really will work. Um, you don't have to agree with people to be civil and live with them and behave kindly toward them. I think Pete Buttigieg said something like that when uh, when he was talking about Mike Pence, that of course Mike Pence was pleasant to me when I would meet him because he's a civil man. Um, I think unfortunately our current president is is not civil and and that's the source of a lot of, you know, he's made it okay to be uncivil. Um, but I think that that, I hope that that will pass. As far as these lawsuits, um, now I'm not going to be civil. That's just nuts. <laughs> That's just completely nuts. Um, but I believe in our court system. I may be completely naive. This may, I may, I remember my husband said that, that the office would temper President Trump. And I said, you misread him. Um, and I turned out to be right on that one. I hope I'm right on this one. Uh, which is that I, I think we can get civility back. And I, I think if people can treat each other politely, we can function and then we'll find our way towards some sort of middle road. But it's it's good for Russia's ratings to say that. You know, it's good for all these guys' ratings to say, you know, you have to pick. It, it, it helps them personally. It makes money for them personally. Um, it's just not good for the rest of the world. You know, Tori, I, I was talking with Gary about this this morning, and um, I always say in these situations, follow the money, uh, especially when you're looking at corruption at a high level like that, well, at any level, follow the money. And, you know, one of the things that, um, I don't know if it's an either or a combination of the two, but, you know, I, I said to Gary, one possibility, of course, is that he is completely delusional, completely and totally, 
The other possibility is he knows it's a ruse, but he's got the election defense fund bringing in money from all kinds of people sending it to him. So it's really just a money-making scheme. And I said, I don't know where the truth is in all of that. I mean, does he believe that he won and 40 million votes went to Germany somewhere? Or I mean, <laughs> or, or is he just saying, send money, send money, because he gets to pocket all of that, that people are, are sending in this scam of overturning the election. And with wide latitude as to how it is spent. That's the thing. It goes right in his pocket. Fine print. In the fine print, it says this money is going into the campaign fund of these people and my, one someone said to me well what good does that do him and i said he get a private plane and have the campaign fund pay for it takes them everywhere you know there's all kinds right. of nest feathering i agree with you Suzanne. i don't think there is any way to know how much of this is just craven manipulation of the system and how much of this is delusional i have really i, I if you ask me to put money on one or the other i would have to just keep keep it in my pocket because I have no I have no idea it's it's almost impossible yeah. for me what he doesn't so much bother me anymore it's the it's the it's the rest of the Republicans who know better yeah yep. I, I think and that they it, do people with with uh back injuries should be very heartened to see that you can walk without a spine at all um <laughs> yeah. No spine in any of these yeah. guys. I mean, just yeah. no spine. Like, no, there's no, didn't anybody ever read them the emperor's new clothes when they were kids? Like, isn't anybody going to stand up and say to this guy, you know, uh, you lost, you lost. I'm, we're sorry. We were, we, even if you wanted to say we're, we were with you, we'll continue to fight the fight, but you, you've got to, for the good of the country, I, where are the men and women who will say something in the, they're all afraid of being primaried. They're all, they're just, this is what fear will do. And yeah. what are they really so afraid of? So they lose. Is there nothing else that they can do? Purdue in Georgia, he's got so much money. He doesn't ever have to work again. Why is this so important to him? That he would take down the whole system while he's at it. And how about the other one? <laughs> She's doing well. <laughs> She's yeah. disturbing. Yeah. Yes, agreed. I have if she says one more time radical socialist, I I just I guess yeah. it's working. I guess they've got polling. I you know, I don't Yes, well, don't... when they were intimating the Republicans that Joe Biden is a socialist, I just laughed out loud. I go, no. Well, <laughs> it's simply not true. How many of the people marching in the, in these in these at these MAGA events were on social security, which that's socialism. They're on Medicare, Medicare, socialism, you, you know, that's your government right there. This whole idea that government is inherently evil. Um, it's fascinating to me when you consider the people who are making this argument have the most to benefit from having a functioning government. And we're going to end on that note. Thank you, Turi Ryder, her book. She said, what? Turi Ryder, R-Y-D-E-R. Always an honored guest whenever we can get together, Tori. So happy Hanukkah to you Thank and you. to everyone else. We're on our way out of here. Coming up next. Christine Upchurch, followed by the Susan Harmon Experience, and then American Road Trip Talk with host Gary Mance. Have a fun and safe weekend, everyone.